Hey, J. Crew, we're back in our cozy studio. We're wearing our fall, we're wearing mufflers and sweaters and fleeces. And that's just going to mean that we have to use some lewd language because we're being ourselves. We don't have our guard up. You get the idea. So we're just going to, we're letting it all hang out. So send the kids out of the room. That Steph, Stephanie's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, about? how am I letting it all hang out if I'm wearing just like so many layers right now? You're letting some <laughs> hang out. The point is, you're but actually hanging out. We have cabin fever. Yeah. The point is, you've had your obscenity warning. It's a lot of like all, I'll say all. Wall, but it's wall. like, if, I, if I'm in the middle of like, kind of like I'm a little heated about something and I'm like, and then all of a sudden, and I was like, all of a sudden. <laughs> and, and it's always bed, And I'm just like, ah! like I try to like catch it and put it back in. Does, ben, does ben shoot you this look like, I thought I'd married a girl who'd been finished at Duke. <laughs> The fine Methodist institution down south. <gasps> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. That's according to um, to Jewmedia.com, which actually manages the worldwide conspiracy. And Stormfront.org. <laughs> Stormfront.org. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And tablet senior writer, Liel Google. Happy Halloween. Yes, we're recording here on... All Hallows. Sid said the funniest thing last night. She said she referred to last night as Air of Halloween. It is. The last night was Air of Halloween. Air of All Hallows Eve. I like that. Air of All Hallows Eve. Our Jew of the Week is best-selling author Alice Hoffman, who has a new novel out, her 800th. And our Gentile of the Week is Charles Griggs, a witch and priest in the Minoan Brotherhood, my favorite pagan order. If you're going to have a pagan Wiccan priest on, you want... We want the right one. That's right. Are the Minoans like the Episcopalians of the Wiccans? Uh, with less gin, <laughs> they are. They're just. They're just classy. They're elite. More. Uh, more eye of newt. <laughs> less gin and tonic. That's right. Um, anyways, so so that's good. So it's gonna be a great show. And um, so excited about the weekend. So excited. Uh, they are both coming to us live from a studio up north in Boston. I think uh, it's actually outside of Boston. It's outside of Boston. It's in the O two one three eight. Where the magic happens. Um, sup, Jews. My parents took Rebecca to see uh, The Battle of the Sexes, the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs movie a couple <laughs> days ago, which apparently is much, much more about Billie Jean King's uh, sexuality yeah. than it is. Have you seen it? No, but yeah. I mean, the, the most amazing part about the film is that it actually sneaks in. Like it, you go in thinking it's like this big man, woman thing. And you're like, oh, there's actually this like a nuanced portrayal of her and, and her. So the way my <laughs> – oh, Sid, and Sid was there too. Is my parents and Sid and Rebecca. And Sid said, yeah. Um, I, I think Rebecca was a little confused. Like she knows there are lesbians, but she couldn't get, well, if she's a lesbian, why was she married? Well, cause she's still like so idealistic and she's like, I don't understand. Even in the, when was it? Like, right. so, what you're saying you, is, yeah, like so what you're saying is Rebecca's a Republican. <laughs> I'm saying, basically, I'm saying, obviously we haven't, you know, she hasn't been force fed, uh, sex ed. Heteronormativity. The, yeah. Okay. I, the real question. And do you want to ask it or should I? I think you should. Did they pay for the movie? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't how many of them? And how many kids' tickets did they get? Now, to be fair, so my parents and how many are both... other movies did they see? <laughs> I don't think Sid would... Sid's not a movie cheater. She's not an Oppenheimer. I, no. I love that they do the movie math. Well, we have two seniors and a kid, so they cancel each other out. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and Sid, you can come too, because... Like, yeah. So, one, well, yeah. Apparently, Rebecca had to cover her eyes at certain points during during Ooh. delicate lady, lady love. Uh, relatively chaste, but to her... Uh, shocking scenes. And so was asked to cover her eyes or no, cover no, no. We, we, we wouldn't ask her to cover her eyes, but she did. And she said, mommy, tell me when it's over. 
There is like this distinct category of movie that I have always just seen with my grandparents and they like there's always just like a graphic sex scene in them. Yeah, like, I remember sure. I watched 40 Days and 40 Nights. Remember that Josh Hartnett movie with my oh, grandparents? And I was just like, I can't cover my eyes this entire movie. Because <laughs> like, nothing guys, actually happens, right? Like, just tired. And I remember we watched like we watched this. I think I've talked about this before. This like Holocaust fencing movie called Sunshine. <laughs> you have talked about this before. And it's like there's like a sex scene in the woods. And I'm just like. I it's very and you know what I mean it's like, like guys why and the like the close captioning is on it's really loud it's like <laughs> <laughs> we all know what's happening I never I never covered my eyes at anything you know I'm kind of I'm kind of proud of this see so because we record in Halloween um I, I will I will confess that growing up in you know the country where the <laughs> Jews live uh, I had New York? a ma- yes Upper West Side Massapequa I had a tremendous case of Halloween envy see Christmas never appealed oh, to me interesting because it was all about family I was like <laughs> and I'm not interested in any of that <laughs> eight but nights Halloween that I have to spend with my parents was about horror movies and candy and so every Halloween I would do my own private celebration in you know Herzliya which involved going to the video store renting out a movie and then eating a lot of candy and you know watching this movie and the amazing thing the video store was basically run by this 16 year old and you could come in as a nine year old and be like can i have nightmare on elm street five <laughs> six and eight and the guy would be like sure like, i don't <laughs> see why here you go and i would go home and i had a vcr in my room I was like this is a mi- oh <laughs> yeah you know i was talking to someone in our office and they didn't grow up they grew up modern orthodox they re- halloween was just not a thing in in her town like it just wasn't no no jewish family did halloween it just you know it wasn't as like fraught as it is today for Jews, which for some reason, you know, like the way you know, it's like, oh, we don't do Halloween. It just no one did it. So she said, she's like, I get so into Halloween now because I can. And it's not like Christmas. Like, I love Christmas because I never knew. Like, I still actually don't know what day Christmas is. Have I explained this before? Like, you're not sure if it's the 24th or the 25th or the 26th. Like, I, it just never 26th. registered yeah. for me. And I was like, is it always a Saturday? Like, it's somewhere I'm, there in the I, third I week. Of and December. that's like a testament to, like, I don't know the insular. <laughs> like, I just will never know it. But I love this. So, so what she was saying was like, you can go all in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can go all in on, on Halloween because it's who cares, right? Like, and so you, you can't like have a Christmas tree. So I think there are ways in which Jews actually, the ones who do celebrate Halloween, there's a lot of like unrepressed so love we connect for it. with America. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sid, whose Halloween was like pressing the up button. Yeah, trick that or, makes me so sad. Trick or treating was like you press up in the elevator, kids, go, go to the fifth floor, the sixth floor, maybe like old Mrs. You know, Wasserman has some like sad little oh. Brock's candies or something. She's she. It's the only time she sews all year is for our kids' Halloween costumes. Like she really does go. It's like they will not suffer the way girls on the lower east, the way little matchstick girls on the lower east side suffer on Halloween. They are going to have a suburban Halloween with door with with ringing of doorbells and and yeah. We so. had a hayride once. My dad made it. He, he had a pickup truck, and we like got bales of hay, and he drove my friends around the neighborhood. This <laughs> is so fun. At some point, Stephanie, we have to have a really frank conversation about what it's like to have had the best grandparents and the best parents. Oh my god! You yeah. seem you have a totally unfraught. It's like yeah, I'm super well adjusted. It's unbelievable. It's like your dad. He he probably rented two horses, filled something with filled a big. No, but actually, our our hay. cousins in Israel. You know, like it's always like the is the Israelis have like they're the American cousins. Yeah. And my sister went over there. Um, when she was she actually met her husband while they were both clerking in Israel. Cliff. For the, yeah, Cliff for the Sook. Supreme Court. And are we have relatives out there in Ramat Hasharon? And they were like. Oh, Francesca, like she had every, she had ponies. And Cliff was like, you had ponies? And she's like, no, I did not have ponies. <laughs> like this idea. Like, Meanwhile, you know, you know, had a pony? You, you, had, you a had a pony. Oh, yeah. Just down the street, the pony. <laughs> um, His name was Sandy and he was, he was an asshole. Just saying. 
I feel like ponies have to be assholes. Are we supposed to be like doing something else here? Are we? You know who's assholes? You know who's assholes? The people who robbed Mechie's Kosher Deli in Brooklyn. Indeed. Last Shabbat, burglars entered through the office of State Senator Simcha Felder, who apparently has an office next to a deli. It's an amazing <laughs> with place. A to, with, with a door in between. a door in between. They went into the State Senator's office. It's exactly how I would do it, it if I was State Senator. <laughs> <laughs> Find me a deli, build a door, well, I'm like, good. Yeah, it's like reverse Watergate. Right, that's, I thought Watergate too. I thought, well, I think the robbers were going to steal sensitive papers and Kugelgate. And then we're like, we smell some tongue from next door. Let's go no, in. The worst part is they didn't even take any like pastrami or anything. They just took like $5,000 Just cash took the from money. register. Uh, which did, is like, you know, I a Shonda. Goyim. Yeah. They didn't what even do they know? No taste. <laughs> no taste at all. No pickles. They didn't take any sour this is, this tomatoes. Is how the police knows that like the perpetrator was not Jewish. <laughs> uh, I just wondered if they like, do you worry that they trafen up the dishes? Like, what if they spilled some milk on the, the what whole if they place? They just touched everything. They just touched everything. No, That's a hate crime. crime. The whole place. It is. It is a hate crime. Speaking of of food related news, the Jews, Trader Joe's is now selling Bamba, the Israeli national, the peanut based uh, snack food that apparently is big in Israel that I've never eaten. Oh, we should get some after this, right on the way to the office. So here's the thing that I didn't know about Bamba until Tablet published a piece about Bamba. Yes. Is that that's why no one in Israel has peanut allergies. Correct. Because yes. like children are for, are like fed Bamba by the bushel, whatever that's that That's right. Yeah. No, Israelis are by very scornful of our peanut allergies that because, no, yeah, they're like, well, just this feed is, your infants Bamba. This is true. This is true. And nobody there has them, right? Nope. I mean, somebody does. There's hey, the, we're going to get mail from like that the person who's no, kid. I want to know. The wee kid. The wee kid. <laughs> <laughs> they don't let you into the army if you have a peanut allergy. No, you have you have to stay you have to stay home. Did you eat a lot of bomba? <laughs> yes. I mean that is my impression. The way they talk about it is like every Israeli child basically sits and eats bomba all day. From long. the moment you're probably I don't know like eight months. You don't even need months. teeth because it's so no squishy. because it'd be it's yeah it just what kinda, is an you equivalent in, in America for someone who has ne- on this who's listening who has imagine never if bomba. cheese puffs were made of peanut butter. Yeah, and they're like a little and thicker it's almost. Delicious, uh, but also at the same time a little airier. Because they kind of do really melt in your mouth. Wow. Sounds amazing. In 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 basic training, um, this will say a lot. We we kind of had a, a rotation because oftentimes we would not all get an opportunity to go to the one store that was open on the base that was open for like you know seventy seconds in the middle of the day. So we would have uh, a rotation between us and one guy. It was his job every day to go to the store and get us all Bamba. He was on Bamba duty? Bamba detail? He was on Bamba detail because (laughs) it's the one thing we could not live without. All the other luxuries of civilian life, fine, but don't take away our Bamba. We're men. Do you still eat Bamba? Yes. It's amazing. So are you going to get it from Trader Joe's? No, I get it from, you know. He he knows a guy. I got to tell you. He knows a guy who knows a guy. as, As happy as I am that Trader Joe's is carrying it, a part of me is like all like Israeli nationalist chauvinist like, what do you mean they're taking the bamba away? This is our bamba. It's not your snack. But is it going to have like a Trader Joe's logo slapped on yes, it and it stuff is. like that? Yes. So it's like, yeah. And, and elephants with yarmulkes. Really? I'm not even kidding. Yeah. That's so the offensive. logo is kind of like, ah. I want to I follow up Stephanie's shrewd question about what is the equivalent here. And you said it was like cheese puffs, but if they were both airier and more substantial, which is really <laughs> is, is Israeli magic. <laughs> they're both lighter and heavier. Correct. But what I want to ask is like, somebody once told me that I was once in a conversation, I think at at my shul, with somebody about the the class connotations of Bamba. Because it's like here these days, a lot of parents we know, I mean, I'll feed my kid cheese puffs because I'll feed them anything, but wouldn't feed their kids like cheese puffs or cheesos or Cheez-Its or whatever. And I was like, is it like that with Bamba? And the person saying, well, y- her argument was, yes, it is seen as kind of a trashy snack, but everyone loves it anyway. Is that is that accurate? No, I don't think it is. Uh, first of all, it came it came to the game kind of late. It, it, Bamba was invaded in the mid sixties. Invaded. 
Invented. You did, did say, say invaded. Bumpo was invaded by the Lebanese <laughs> in ninety. And then again by Trader Joe's. That is what the annexed Fourth Lebanon War is about. Right. Uh, it was invented in the in the late sixties, and then Beastly, which by the way, oh is, yeah, so it, good. In my opinion, the superior snack was invented in the late seventies, and it was such a novelty that the company had awesome, which makes them had to literally invent a word for snack. Which did not exist in Hebrew. It's like, <laughs> what is this new thing? It's like, ah, uh, a thing that you grab? And so they call it khatif, which is literally the thing that you grab, right? That is the Hebrew meaning of it. Grabos. The grabo, right? The, the grab thing. <laughs> but I love the idea that like Israelis ate, you eat to live, kind of. like, And then all of a sudden it's like, a that's, snack? That's what right. is a snack? So we didn't even have time to develop this conversation <laughs> because it literally came to be as I was you know, growing up. It's like, oh, that thing, awesome. Like, we'll all eat it. And the way that they did it is amazing. They had no idea what flavor was supposed to be. So they literally tried every <laughs> flavor in the factory, took it across the street to a high school, <laughs> left five bowls outside like bird food, and s- like looked at which one the students emptied first. Be like, we'll make this flavor. The kids like this the best. And it's amazing. It's an amazing snack. That was like the first focus group. This right. is 1977. Israeli. We've Sa- just learned a lot. Sabra ingenuity. Um, Mandy Moore, this, this is an important story for reasons that are about to become apparent. Mandy Moore, uh, who used to be married to... Ryan Adams. Thank you. Is engaged to Taylor Goldsmith, the lead singer of the band Dawes, uh, and who, who is a Jew, apparently. This is an important story for two reasons. Number one, I really like the band Dawes, and it's one of the only concerts <laughs> I've ever persuaded <laughs> Sid to go to with me. Sid doesn't do concerts because they're loud, but she went to see Dawes with me. The other thing is because Mandy Moore, in addition to being in the in the weekly tearjerker, NBC tearjerker, This Is Us, is also the star of Sid's favorite movie ever, American Dreams, which was a, a little known comedy. Was Dennis Quaid in it? Yes, he was. That it turns out when I was mention, when mentioning this on our conference call the other night, there's one other American, one other, sorry, one what? other human. One other person. Who remembers this movie fondly, and it's Liel Leibowitz. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> who and else wastes who his Im- time with? Who, who immediately started singing, as Sid always does when this movie comes up, American, American Dreams. Dreams with a Z. Dreams with a Z. Wait, that's actually the song? Yes. Yep. Oh, my God. It's a movie that it, it's a mashup of a movie about a real, an American Idol-like reality show and an Al-Qaeda spy ring. Wow, no spoilers. No spoilers, just nope. to tell you. Who do they pick? Do they pick Adam Levine? If you are if you're in the in the kind of like population crossover genre that uh, likes that kind of thing, if you like some terrorist plots and singing competition, this, this is, is your movie. Really yes, your I'm movie. I'm just happy Mandy's happy. Yeah, you know, me too. Ryan Adams, it didn't go well. He like, she had all these pets all of a sudden that they had adopted and she had to take care of them and she like sued for pet support. She, she did? Just like, I missed yeah. that story. Which I think is actually a really important way to start thinking about things. If um, you and Ben split, who would Cat Stevens go with? Actually, there's no way Ben would take Cat Stevens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Never mind. But, I mean, yes, we wish Mandy Moore not, nothing but the best, all sorts of um, mazels. Um, Maybe they'll have a walk to remember down the aisle. We, ooh. Would you say nice. that she has a type going from one, you know, scruffy... Well, she alt rock singer to another scruffy alt rock singer. I mean, you might say I don't if the, begrudge her that. You might say if the Ryan Adams thing didn't work out, going for like JV Ryan Adams is not the strongest. Does JV stand for Jewish varsity? Jewish, Jewish varsity. <laughs> Jewish, Jewish variety. She needed a Jewish Ryan Adams. Yeah, basically. And she found one. Anyway, big mazel tov to future Gentile of the Week, Mandy Moore. Um, Mandy Goldsmith. <laughs> Mandy Definitely Moore. went to camp with her. 
And a final and most important bit of news of the Jews. Uh, this came in as a, a tip from listener David Harnash. We, he, we heard about it from him first, though it has since blown up in the Jewosphere. A train in Germany. It, well, Leo, you should you should really tell us the story. So uh, Deutsche Bahn, the German <laughs> railway company, uh, was was having a meeting. It's like, you know what would be cool and creative uh, if we had a competition to name the trains yeah, after famous people? Uh, who can we name the German train after? And of course, the chosen name is Anne Frank. The Anne Frank. So because is, why wouldn't you? This is you basically know. like the Bodie McBoat face <laughs> drama of Germany. Yes. So that was that they like offered they like they had a contest to name a boat in England, right? In England, yes. But Bodie McBoatface did not carry six million Bodies uh, to their <laughs> to their drowny death, right? And Deutsche Bahn, who before that was Deutsche, uh, I, they had a different name which had you know Reich in it, right. but uh, did actually take uh, you know millions of people too. Uh, their untimely demise. So, you know, don't do that. Generous reading where it's like, we are so aware that we are going to do this and you're going to, it's going to, we're all going to be thinking about this all the time. That's what they said. It's like, but we wanted a name that connoted the universal, you know, appeal to human brotherhood. Right. You also killed 6 million people. Let's not do that. Let me read from the BBC piece. Jury member, Professor, Herr Dr. Frau Dr. Professor Gisela Mettler said there was impressive diversity in the many famous names suggested by the public. You have to do the accent. The ones selected have one thing in common. They were curious about the world. <laughs> that was Anne Frank's. That's why they selected Und her. we nipped it in the bud. <laughs> the 25 include some wartime dissidents who died resisting the Nazis, Hans and Sophie Scholl and the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> they also include former German Chancellors Konrad Adenauer, Ludwig Erhard and First. Willy Brandt. First, the trains came as, as well as from philosophy. Munich, but I didn't get on because I wasn't going to Munich. But by the time the train came for me, <laughs> there was no one to get, on the, no one to get on the train. <laughs> as well as philosophers Hannah Arendt and Karl Marx. There are that, trains. Yeah. So there's the Hannah Arendt, the Karl Marx. ICE trains will also be named after novelist Thomas Mann, music maestro Ludwig van Beethoven, and actress and singer Marlena Dietrich. Wow. But on the one, okay, so on the one hand, it's Guys, don't you have like soccer stars or something? Like, just be normal, Germany. We get it. Okay. I mean, on the one hand, this is, this is ridiculous, or as the Germans would say, ridiculous. But on the other hand, like in America, we'd be naming them after like Derek Jeter. That's so I mean, it's because, like uh, the Beethoven and the Thomas Mann does say something. It speaks well of their. Yeah. I mean, there is, I don't know. Look, I think at this point, Anne Frank is. She belongs to us all. No, I mean, she. all of us and no, none of us, right? Like she has actually, <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm totally serious. There's a way in which her ubiquity is actually usurping her legacy in a lot of ways. Like, okay, we slap Anne Frank on, on a soccer jersey. We Sorry, football jersey. Like we put her on a train. It's like, it, the, the yeah, we did put her is, on a train. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the problem that oh, we did once upon a time. Actually, she was never on a train. On a train. She was just, just, oh no, it's probably from her attic. There probably train. was a train. Yeah, but, it was a train. To me, it's like she, the dilution of her legacy. First of all, the the like the extreme. First, I don't know. First, we are so obsessed with her, and then she's just sort of become everywhere and everything. So, sort of less meaningful. And yet, I still haven't read the diary of Anne Frank. And one day you will. One day I think I you should will. do it in the air. Is there I think an this audiobook? should be its own podcast. It's Mark exactly Mark <laughs> podcasting. And Frank's diary, and it's played at the beginning of uh, Italian football games. It's right. It's it's chapter after chapter. Why with, don't you do an audio with running commentary? All around the water tank, waiting for a train. A thousand 
miles away from home, sleeping in the rain. Some newsletter subscribers, we are oh so excited to welcome the new law firm of Grace Davidson, Susie Shalom, Sammy Klaskin, Peter Francis Aiello, and Madeline Lonke. Madeline Lonke is a very special addition to the subscriber family. We're oh, very, absolutely. We're very excited that she made partner. Right. Uh, Liel, who is Madeline Lonke? Well, you know of two brothers. You know of Thor and Lonke. Yes. But there was a third one, Lonke. Mm-hmm. Lonke was the Jewish brother. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was Odin's Jewish son from his first marriage to, to Madeline Schwartz. Uh, and he was, you know, he was the smart one. He did not fight civil wars with the other not Marvel a good soldier. superheroes. Yep. No, nothing like not no Ragnarok for him. Yep. Um, he came. He came onto in, onto Earth. Uh, he left. He left the gods. Uh, and he got a job uh, as know, an actuary. He, he he opened a law firm. <laughs> yeah. uh, he did very well for himself. And and of him. Uh, all all Lonkies, uh have uh, have since. So descended. when does he get his own movie <laughs> starring Judd Hirsch as Lonky? As Lonky, the newsletter is not the regular tablet newsletter. Oh no, no, no. oh no. no, no, not nothing against the regular tablet newsletter, which is a newsletter you should get. But for an extra special spiritual experience, get the tablet newsletter handwritten by a maniac with a quill and then transcribed onto a computer. By Liel Leibowitz. You can get it by visiting our website to sign up for it, tabletmag.com, or sending an email asking for it, pleading for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You know, put newsletter in the subject line. Also, we're doing an advice show coming up soon. If you have questions, if you want any advice, if you want our wisdom, send us a question at uh, unorthodox at tabletmag.com and put advice or help me in the subject line. SOS. <laughs> While you're at it, rate us on iTunes and join the Facebook group. And when you join the Facebook group, add your hundred best friends or worst enemies to the Facebook group. If you really want to get an anti-Semite, add them to the to the unorthodox Facebook group. Just, just do at David Duke <laughs> and press enter. <laughs> Our Jewish guest this week is Alice Hoffman. She has written everything. She's written <laughs> The Dove Keepers. She's written Practical Magic. And now she's back with the prequel to Practical Magic. It's called The Rules of Magic. Um, it's wonderful. And it was out this month just in time for Halloween. And we're so excited, Alice, to have you here with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what made you decide to go back? You know, Practical Magic was written in the 90s. It obviously became a movie with Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. A lot of people are probably watching it tonight on Halloween. <laughs> what, what made you yes. want to go back and, and revisit the story? Well, you know, I always felt like there was more to that family. I feel like, and I'm interested in going back in time. I, I, I'm writing about the 60s and the rules of magic, which is the time that I grew up. But I think it's really an important time to look back to right now. Why specifically? Because it was a time when, you know, the country was so divided as it is now. And it was a time when there were so many different cultural changes and changes in attitudes about women and gays and lesbians and outsiders of all kinds. And um, I, I just feel like there's a lot for us to learn looking backwards at that time about all that we managed to accomplish to change. I do think it's interesting you, you mentioned Outsiders. A, a book that recently came up in, in our household was um, a book you wrote in 1988, uh, At Risk, about the, the girl who gets AIDS from a, a blood transfusion. Yeah. And that was an incredibly early time to have been writing about AIDS. I mean, that means you were probably writing in 86, 87 when, when you know, the disease was still very, very new. And I'm curious what, you know, what was that like for you? What was the reception of that? Did, did, did that get a lot of attention at the time? I couldn't, couldn't quite remember. I know it as a yeah. book that we're probably going to give one of our daughters now. 
Yeah, it did get a lot of attention, and and it's still being read, especially in high schools, because it's so much about how do how do you treat an an outsider or someone that's viewed as an outsider. You know, I think the reason that I wrote it was because I was pregnant at the time, and I was just thinking about you know when you're pregnant, when you have a child, how you go over to the other side, really, and you have so much to lose. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it was the kind at that time. I mean, it's hard to kind of believe it now for people who are younger, but at that time, you know, nobody talked. About it, it was it was really a divisive issue. People didn't want to go to school with with someone that had AIDS. I mean, it was just horrendous the way people were being treated. So this is what you wrote as a sort of kind of like calming down, soothing book while you're while you're being pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like feel good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you have to write it to know it. I think. But I, I wanted to ask, and this this goes back to to what Mark was saying. It seems like so much of 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 what you do it has this kind of uncanny way of being, you know, ten fifteen years ahead of the cultural curve. Even you know, like Practical Magic, let's, that came out in the time way before these issues and these themes became kind of like, you know, pop culture, nerdy obsessions. What, what's going on here? What, 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 what do you know? Yeah. And how do you know it? <laughs> and, what, and what's coming next? <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny you say that because I always think that the writer is much smarter than the person. And I feel like, you know, things I know as a writer, I don't know as a person. And partially I'm writing these books because I have questions and I don't have the answers. And the only way to find out is to write it. And it's funny with Practical Magic. I just read in Time magazine that witches have voted it the the their most beloved movie, the best movie about witches, which made me feel really good. <laughs> because you know, it's about family, and that's what it's really about. It's not so much about witches; it's about sisterhood. It's about um, women. It's about family. And sorry, witches really love you, right? Like you are not you are totally welcomed and like lauded for for your for your spot on work basically i i think so because you know i i'm kind of like I'm trying to kind of redefine the popular mythology uh, that was kind of the twisted version of what a witch is. And, you know, it's so interesting just in terms of being Jewish that when I did research about um, the Spanish Inquisition for a book I wrote for teens uh, called Incantation, I was really surprised to discover that Spain and Portugal were the only two European countries that did not have witch hunts because the Inquisition served the same purpose. You go after so they were going go after, after Jews after instead. Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly. So witch is your Welcome. We took yeah. the heat for you in Spain and Portugal. Yeah, right. That's true. So you, your books are not all of them, but but a lot of them are are pretty much in the in what you'd call the fantasy genre. Um, that's a a genre Liel enjoys very much. My co-host Liel. Are you into fantasy, Stephanie? I'm. I mean, besides Alice Hoffman, when it's not Alice Hoffman, do you read a lot of fantasy? <laughs> no, I no. do read a lot of Alice Hoffman. You do read a lot of Alice <laughs> Hoffman, though. It's, but it's I think that's common, should... right? I mean. Well, it's funny you should say that because I am kind of, I'm one of these people, I don't believe in genres. And I think, you know, when I was starting out as a writer, if you wrote about magic in any way, you were a fantasy and science fiction writer. And I actually grew up reading fantasy and science fiction. I love it. But I think as time went on, people decided to call certain things magic realism. If they thought it was literary, it mm-hmm. would be magic realism. Mm-hmm. And I think now certain writers that would have been not been accepted as mainstream literary writers, like a writer like Ursula Le Guin who writes fantasy and science fiction, she's considered a writer, period. You know, so I have, you know, I don't mind being called uh, somebody who writes magic realism. But to tell you the truth, I think that's the original literature anyway. I mean, I think magic is always in literature, the original literature, whether it's folk tales or myth or fairy tales. So, I, you know, I kind of don't get this kind of 
division of of um, literature into genres so much. It's a, if it's a great book, it's a great book. I also Amen. think it, it serves to work against largely female writers who are saying, oh, they're romance writers, oh, they're fantasy writers, as opposed to just yeah, writers. Yeah, it does, I have to say. That's true. Yeah, although my, true. although to the extent that I have regrettable anti-fantasy or anti-sci-fi prejudices, they're about men in their basements, not about women. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, funny you should say that because, you know, one of the reasons I started reading science fiction and fantasy is because my father left and he left a box of books in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alice, you you've written eight hundred books. Do you remember yes. them? Do you remember them all? Like, <laughs> Not I at mean, all. <laughs> right? I've I've written only three books, and I have no idea what I said in the first one. I mean, you must, <laughs> there must be if I quizzed you on the plot of book number twelve, you wouldn't remember, right? You know, I remember some things, but not others. And the way I think about it is this, and maybe you do too. Um, I think it, it's like being an actor; you're in a play, and when that play is over, you forget the lines. You kinda, you, yeah, you're going on to another play. Yeah. Yeah. You can't remember the lines of every play. Right. I, I think you wouldn't be able to talk then. Right. <laughs> Although I, I once knew an actor who said he remembered the lines of every play he'd been in. I was, I was really? flabbergasted. Yeah. I, it, it seemed inhuman. But Well, that's well, good. I, I think you – yeah, I think you only have so much space in your brain. So that actor is probably going right. to, I don't know, implode. So we need to talk about the Dove Keepers. I feel like of our listenership, that is – like if I could say like raise your hand if you've, if you've read that. That's like where everyone is is cheering in the audience. Um, do people come up to you and tell you like their Dove Keepers moment? Some of them do. Yeah, <laughs> they do. Well, you know, I mean, I had my own Dove Keepers moment. I think, you know, I didn't expect to write that book. And, and I felt like the reason I did really was because my son was an archaeologist and he was working in Israel. And, uh, you know, we didn't have much in common. He didn't read books and he didn't read fiction. But when he started to talk about archaeology, I realized he was talking about telling stories. So, um, I went to Israel to meet him, and then while I was there, I went with my family to Masada in August, which nobody told me. Yeah. Don't <laughs> Good call. <laughs> but, the, but the great thing is no one else was there except for us. And when I got to the top, I just felt like I, was, I had a spiritual experience that I didn't expect to have. And I felt like I could hear the voices of the people who were there, especially the women, because I had stopped in the museum and I saw all the amazing artifacts that had belonged to women. And, you know, I still didn't think of it as a book at all. But as I was walking around, I saw a little plaque that said there had been survivors. And as soon as I saw that there had been survivors, I felt like maybe this is a book. Hmm. And, and The Dove Keepers, for people who don't know, is, you know, tells a story about, I think, the three women at what happens after, basically. I actually was reading it while I was on Birthright, like right before we went to Masada. Oh. So that <laughs> yeah. was amazing for me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, for me, I, I really wrote in the voices of four women, and I knew two women survived. That was what Josephus said, so I'm going on his account. But I didn't know while I was writing the book which, which of the four women who would live and who would die. So for me, it was kind of, uh, you know, I was a, it was a page turner for me. I wanted to find out what happened. Hmm. Now, you're from Long Island, right? Mm-hmm. Where we just have to establish how far from Stephanie you grew up. Where are you oh, from? where did you grow up, I grew Stephanie? up in Great Neck. I grew up well, far from there. Okay. Um, I grew up in, in Hempstead, um, Franklin Square, uh, kind of a cement-ish Levitan sort of place. Well, that sounds horrible. Well, it, it kind of made me believe in magic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you had to escape to the books in the so basement. Speaking of which, what 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 comes next? Tell us, tell us where the culture is headed. Tell us what we have to fear, right around the bend. Well, I have to say, I was working on a book about real estate in New York, and I stopped writing that right after the election. I, I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. Too real. So, too real. 
Um, I'm still interested in, I'm always interested in New York City. Um, I, I'm working on a book, but I, I feel like, you know, until it's done, I feel like I can't really talk about it because you never know if a book's going to completely come alive until you finish. And, you know, I've done a lot of research and I've traveled, but I, I still don't know if it's, if it's really the book. And I won't know probably for another six months. Well, I hope it holds some, some rosy future for humanity, uh, you know. Because we, we could use Well, some. you know, to tell you the truth, I'm always interested in survivors because I feel like, you know, I, I don't understand how people manage to survive the things they do. And I always feel like that's my field of study is to study survivors. Alice, thank you so much. Um, this was wonderful. And happy, happy Halloween. Oh, thank you. Happy Halloween to <laughs> you, How do you too. celebrate? What, what's, what's your Halloween routine? Oh, I'm having a party. <laughs> 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 what about you? <laughs> we're, well, this year I'm giving out the no. I'm taking the kids door oh, yeah, to door. Yeah, split up. And One Sid's giving stay. out the candy. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Which is interesting because giving out the candy is more social. So she usually leaves that to me because I like gabbing with everyone who comes by. But this year she wants to do that. So yeah. well, once your kids grow up, you can have a party. <laughs> All right, is that what adults do on Halloween? <laughs> yeah, that's what child we do. child free adults do on Halloween. Right. We have a lot to look forward to. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Raven hair and ruby lips Sparks fly from her fingertips Ooh, witchy woman See how high she flies Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolfe. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, our Gentile of the week is Charles Griggs. He is a witch and priest in the Minoan Brotherhood. He's been practicing in the pagan world for 13 years, which makes him, I think, a bar mitzvah. And he's also studying at the Harvard Divinity School. Welcome, Charles. Hello, thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Have you ever been a Gentile of the Week before? I have not. I'm super excited. What's going to happen? <laughs> that's a, that's a well, good question. You'll Anything see. is possible. It's Halloween. <laughs> it's when the Jews come out. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So is is Halloween considered offensive? I know it's. Is it Samhain? So the way that it's usually pronounced is Sawan or Savin, depending upon which dialect you're speaking in. Halloween is perfectly fine because uh, it was appropriated from um, pagan religions, but it has become a religious holiday for some people. And it's a, a time for others to party. But, you know, it has numerous dimensions and nobody really owns the word. OK, so tonight when, when, when we heathens go out and eat, you know, little Kit Kats and, and watch put razor blades movies, and apples. Right? Uh, what 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 do you guys do? <laughs> so um, Samhain is usually about honoring the dead. Um, what would happen is we normally would all get together and um, meditate, have some quiet time, and then what we would do is cast a circle with something called an athame usually, which is a ceremonial blade that's used to um, symbolically cut space to put you between the worlds of the goddesses and gods and the world of humankind. And then we would invoke the goddess and gods after calling the uh, spirits of the four directions. And we would uh, recite a small liturgy about the process that's happening theologically right now. And after that, we might also take time to remember our mighty dead who have passed this year. Uh, mighty dead were practitioners and then also our family members who um, we don't call mighty dead because we respect that while uh, they may not have practiced in our religion, we still want to remember them. So no fun-sized candy? Um, there might be fun-sized candy afterwards. There's always a feast. I mean, it is supposed to be a party. We believe in mirth and reverence, and you can't have one without the other. I like that. I think, that, I think that's true. Mirth without reverence is, uh, is, is frivolous, and reverence without mirth is boring. You can put <laughs> that right. you you can put that on your on your letterhead. So I'm guessing because your name is Charles Griggs that you that you grew up a lapsed Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, Evangelical United Methodist from Alabama. Oh, okay. Well, that was my next guess. So, <laughs> so that's an even stranger journey then. If you grew up Evangelical UMC from Alabama, uh, how did you end up um, a, a a priest of the Minoan uh, tradition? I think like a lot of people who are very spiritual and devotional, I had mystical and ecstatic experiences as a young child. And um, I went looking for answers to, you know, what this all meant. I think that religion is a great way to make meaning of our experiences. Um, and I cycled through a lot of reading and a lot of uh, tagging around my family's church uh, because my dad is also a minister. So priesthood is kind of a thing, I guess. And um, I ended up in um, 
a type of Gardnerian Wicca to start with, which is very heteronormative. And while um, a lot of people find that enriching, and uh, I've actually met very few uh, heterosexual priests in Gardnerian Wicca, um, I really needed something that spoke to me as a gay man because, um, you know, uh, the charge of the goddess says that she is that which is attained at the end of desi desire. And I didn't think that I could appropriately uh, explore my desires as a gay man in a sacred uh, way, being in a tradition that was really structured for heterosexuals. And so that's how I ended up in the Minoan Brotherhood. It's open to all men who love men and also men who don't love men as long as they're comfortable being around a bunch of gay men. <laughs> well, I mean, that's interesting to me because as a journalist, I, I spent some time in Wiccan traditions and all of them seem to be heavily populated with with gay men. I mean, I, I, I was never in a space that I felt was uh, wasn't a little bit queer, to be frank. Um, so, mm -hmm. I mean, was the tradition that you were in not hospitable to gay men or it, was it not a very gay tradition? Well, um, it is very gay in population, but the uh, gods are usually functionally heterosexual. I mean, the... Um, the whole thing is based around showing you the um, mystery of the tradition, which is the divine union of the feminine and masculine principle. And so that really gives off more of a fertility cult vibe. And while there are figurative ways to take fertility, it's not something that gay men can actually uh, engage in with their same-sex partners most of the time. Uh, meanwhile, the Minoan Brotherhood is... A tradition of witchcraft that really um, embraces ecstasy as equal to fertility. And so it doesn't have like a family as the end means of all of its rituals. Speaking of family, uh, you know, yours is, is, it sounds, is, is, is deeply kind of ingrained in the church. How, how, did, they, uh, how did they take your, your spiritual journey? Um, we agree to disagree and we're all on our best behavior. <laughs> I mean, um, I came out of the broom closet, so to speak, <laughs> at a very young age. And, um, you know, they've had 13 years of being aware that this was a part of my life, even though I tried to get rid of it. And so, um, I guess when it comes down to it at the end of the day, uh, there has to be some respect that this is what my father would call my calling, although I don't think he would admit it. <laughs> but it strikes me, and, and maybe it's just because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew who tends to see persecution everywhere. It strikes me that really your tradition is, is one of very, very few that is still kind of, you know, misunderstood, disrespected. I feel like you could walk in and say, like, I'm just about anything, and people be like, oh, that's really interesting. But you say that, well, I'm in the Manilan tradition, people be like, what? Like, are you, are you kooky? Like, are you out of your mind? Do you, do you, do you get that, or am I just being oversensitive? Um, I definitely get that, and there is an unspoken uh, perception, I think, that I'm probably a little kooky by most people. Um, and I think a lot of that is the ingrained... Uh, Puritanism that we still have in American culture um, because, you know, witchcraft as a religion is very embracing of all aspects of life and there is not really a gigantic divide between um, the sacred and the profane. We learn to see one and the other. And so I think that's probably what scares people most. And so I usually just say I'm a pagan uh, if it comes down to it and if it doesn't, then it doesn't. It's usually something that we have to kind of uh, scaffold up to to get people to understand that witches are not interested in eating their children. <laughs> so let's let's step back a little bit. So how do 
how are witches different from pagans? Let's like try to dispel some ignorance while we can on the show. Thank you for asking. That's a really important question, actually. Modern pagans uh, are usually more focused at, at its at its very base level. Um, paganism is focused on exoteric and celebratory um, practices that uh, seek to attune people with the cycles of the earth. And you don't really need any training whatsoever to be a pagan. Once you get to being a witch in the way that I was trained, and not everyone will agree with me, but uh, once you get to being a witch, there is an initiation and training that has to happen, which makes you a priestess or priest and a technician of the sacred. So there's a much more esoteric knowledge that has to happen. And so really, one is more celebratory, one is more initiatory, but there are myriad types of um, different witches and pagans throughout the community. When you say esoteric knowledge, I think most of our listeners are thinking he's talking about, you know, Eye of Newt and magic. I mean, it's, it, what, say, say more about that because I'm actually really interested in the technical side of things. And one thing so, you should understand, Charles, is that Liel's a bit of a seeker himself. Like the, the odds are, you know, between one and three percent that he could end his days as a Minoan uh, well, no, I just, I, I just have, you know, profound, being myself a religious human, I have profound respect for all other religious humans. No, but I'm saying of, of the three of us, you're the most likely to have had some of these experiences as a kid. I would say of the three of us, I'm the most likely to anything. To anything. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is that you say, that's true. Fair enough. Uh, ba ba back to you, Charles. So, um, interesting fact, I have Newt is actually just a mustard seed. Wow. <laughs> well, I love mustard. Uh, that's yeah, my thing. Uh, that's, that's like trendy. That's too. my jam. I love mustard seeds. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just um, brewing up some essential oils with my partner to um, also help him uh, with some issues in his life because, uh, you know, and that's kind of the more exoteric stuff, delving into the herbs and things that are accessible to everybody. Esoteric knowledge, I think, for witches is really built within community because once you get initiated into a coven in uh, most mainstream uh, versions of witchcraft or a grove in the Minoan Brotherhood, what happens is that you become very close to these people um, because you do share things that um, you know are oath-bound and it's kind of like a family and so the esoteric knowledge that you get um, is really more based upon a sense of mystery that you share with your immediate Grover Coven but then also um, a sense of mystery that you share with the greater tradition itself and what's interesting about that is that witchcraft as I practice it in my family of traditions that I'm related to is not an orthodoxy. There's no absolute correct belief. It's an orthopraxy. And so what happens with the orthopraxy is that everyone goes through the same initiations and elevations up until you get to third degree. But the thing is that since you're not told you have to believe about it in a certain way, everyone has a different experience. And so it's really a beautiful thing where we can celebrate our diversity and the fact that your mileage may vary. <laughs> as, as the sacred texts say as the sacred text says yes <laughs> there, there are ways in which i've noticed in in popular female culture right now that like words like witches and coven like coven essentially can for a lot of people means like squad um are those is that a is that something that bothers you or is there a sense in which like if everyone if, if everyone is thinking that coven is really cool then that's that actually is great for for larger you know stereotypes and things like that you know, I'm really glad that um, witchcraft and this terminology is uh, enjoying a resurgence in popular culture. Um, I'm not so hot on the fact that, you know, people are 
turning into IRAB priests and priestesses. And, you know, the IRAB tradition is just, I read a book. <laughs> you don't get initiated. <laughs> you don't get initiated from reading a book. And so while I'm really happy that um, people are using these terms and learning more about them, I think that part of spiritual life um, and one of the eight Wiccan virtues uh, mentioned in the charge of the goddess is actually humility. And so there's a certain point where one has to have humility and say, well, I can't learn everything from Google. And there is a lot of oral lore and um, lore and sacred texts, which are only passed um, by hand and by copying, that you're just not going to get on the internet and from um, popular culture. And so while I'm glad that it's happening, I also think that... Um, you know, we all need to uh, be willing to learn something. I'm learning something new every day. I didn't know what a supreme was. I was ignorant. <laughs> Listen, as as Diana a, Ross, yeah, as as a oh, yeah. Jew, <laughs> let me let me let me tell you what's going to happen to you guys. Pretty soon, you're going to have cultural Wiccans. Going to be people. <laughs> look, I don't really know anything, but I really enjoy Eye of Newt, so I'm kind of Wiccan just because I like this food that I eat. Hey, Charles, you uh, as a Gentile of the week, one of the the privileges, one of the uh, esoteric privileges having been inducted into our podcast is you get to ask us a question about Judaism or Jewish practice or Jewish culture um, that we, an internationally recognized panel of experts, can answer for you. Uh, what, what question do you have for us? So um, it's actually one I've been wrestling with quite a bit too. Um, in witchcraft and occultism, um, the Kabbalah is fairly prevalent Um due to things like the Golden Dawn, which was an initiatory hermetic order, and then, um, you know, witchcraft uh, absorbing that because, you know, Doreen Valiente, who uh, wrote a lot of our liturgy, uh, said, if it works, use it. And so people have been using Kabbalah kind of indiscriminately without getting much training from um, Jewish masters of it or Jewish teachers of it. And I was wondering how uh, you feel about non-Jews using Kabbalah in a way that's maybe not necessarily very Jewish or even informed by the Jewish tradition anymore. Listen, between a Harvard Divinity student and Madonna, yeah, we, we're, we're, we're happy. I, I, I would say this in, in, in all honesty. I, I do, um, I, I'm a student of Kabbalah myself, a relatively new one, just a few years. Um, I think that while I certainly locate it uh, within the within the Jewish tradition and within uh, Jewish theology, uh, I I certainly believe that it's uh, wisdom uh, as as do the wisdoms of you know all spiritual human teachings it transcends uh, specificities and boundaries and categories, and I'm personally delighted. Uh, whenever any anyone takes any interest uh, in anything, <laughs> let alone something as as meaningful and as beautiful as Kabbalah, so uh, you know, labriut as they say in Hebrew, gesundheit. There's a way in which this sort of reflects my last question to you, which was like, I don't know if you see someone wearing a red bracelet, right, like this Kabbalah string, mm -hmm. and you know it's not meaningful. Like they're, they don't know the story behind it. They're just saying like, Oh, like I have a patch on my backpack and it says like coven. Cause I'm like, I'm a, I'm very like woke essentially. Um, but I have no idea what it means and what, what its significance is. So I think there's yeah. a way in which it sort of works both ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally have, I'm always in favor of people appropriating Judaism, culturally appropriating Judaism for whatever works for them. I mean, if you, you know, if it makes you feel more spiritual to grow side locks or wear a yarmulke, like, you know, Gesundheit, hate as, as Liel said, but but I also agree with Stephanie that um, if I may rephrase, if, if I may give my version of what I think Stephanie was getting at, Mark explain, yes, Mark's if I can Mark explain, 
I mean, well, if I could give my more cynical version of what you were diplomatic and polite about saying, a lot within Judaism, a lot of the people who dabble in Kabbalah just seem silly because they get the, you know, they buy a little Kabbalah water, they wear a red bracelet, and they read like one book. They are Irabs. Uh, they are Irab Kabbalists. And, <laughs> yeah, Kab- but- and Kabbalah is like, it is, it is stuff people spend decades. It is really difficult, really obscure, and really misunderstood. And so it's like within Judaism, it a professed interest in Kabbalah is like the number one signifier that you're a dilettante. Man, I hear you, but at the same time, any step that you take to open the heart, you know, any at all. Uh, don't don't Liel explain me and make is, me look is, like a douche. Welcome. Why you got to make me look like a hater? You know? <laughs> this is, by the way, the opposite of how these conversations I'm, I'm usually the, go. Because so I'm Charles, the lover. Thank you. If the red string fits, I have to wear it? That's exactly. Oh, my God. Liel is usually our militant <laughs> orthodoxy bound right. person, and Mark is sort of like, go with the flow. But So apparently we found something that has... Change, change the narrative. <laughs> and it, all it took is a, is a, is a priest. Um, I have a cultural appropriation question for you, uh, Charles, okay. which is we adopted two cats about uh, 13 years ago. Uh, they're dearly departed. They've gone to the great grove in the sky, uh, if I may syncretistically fuse all sorts of traditions there. Uh, one of them was named Emma Gray, like the French emigre, to em- an emigrant, E-M-I-G-R-E, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, an accent. Mm-hmm. The other one was named Samhain, um, after the Wiccan... Uh, holiday. Uh, are you okay with some, you know, hipster in Somerville, Mass, naming their cat that we ended up adopting, Samhain? Um, well, sure. Do what makes you feel spiritual. Grow your sidewalks. <laughs> as long as she doesn't wear like a Kabbalah string around her neck, that would just be too much. So Charles, is there a traditional greeting that you would give tonight that we can give you? Um, one of the most common pagan greetings is blessed be. Blessed, blessed be. be. Blessed be. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Charles. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft Guys, I, uh, for the mailbox this week, I want to catch up on an old letter. It just never made it on. It was lurking there. Just didn't, never inserted itself, never spoke up, never raised its hand. We couldn't get to inbox zero because it was there. That's yep. right. Yep. Time to get to inbox zero. It's from way back. Dear Unorthodox, I never mailed to you about your Camp Stories episode, though as a Kinderland alum, I take issue with the idea that everyone there is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you recently mentioned Yoni, the Sanskrit for vagina, literally vessel, and I finally had to write something. When I was at Kinderland, campers were allowed to choose an elective or a choice each week. One week, I chose the feminist choice. At first, we were just a bunch of grade schoolers reading from the vagina monologues. But later, we celebrated our new womanly pride by crafting yoni jewelry, anatomically correct necklaces and bracelets. We didn't have we didn't have much use for our new jewelry later in the week. Fortunately, there was a boy in my year named Yoni. (laughs) We gave him all the jewelry we had made, and I believe he proudly wore an entire treasure chest of vagina shaped accessories for the rest of the summer. All my love to Stephanie and mild contempt to Liel, Naomi. <laughs> wow, Naomi, that's amazing. I also feel like you oh, can sell those. I think mild those... contempt is like should be a new blessing. <laughs> mild, mild contempt. Mild, mild contempt. MC. I think Yoni got really laid that summer. <laughs> Yoni was like 11, Liel. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you In that? your culture, this is not the Yoni age for this sexual relation? Yoni is eternal. Um, First of all, I love that they were ahead of Gwyneth on. Well, maybe they weren't. I don't know when it, they must no, have been. They were. This was ten or fifteen years ago. They were ahead of Gwyneth on the Yoni thing, the Yoni train, riding the Yoni train. Uh, second, if somebody out there in Listerland could find for us this boy Yoni, who went to Camp Kinderland, I'm guessing ten, fifteen years ago, 
and got all the yoni and jewelry. And walked around with, with <laughs> vagina shape. This would yeah. be our equivalent of, I think NPR did a story and like in it about some village somewhere and someone was wearing like a bar mitzvah t-shirt that was obviously like from an American kid's bar mitzvah. And then they tracked down oh my God. whose bar mitzvah, whose bar mitzvah it was. was. It's amazing. Uh, mazel tovs, Stephanie Butnick. Do you have a, a mazel tov? My mazel tov is to listener Hannah Lonke, who came up to me after the live show and told me that because of our episode with cat therapist Carol Wilburn, she got a second cat. And she said that she had never, like, until hearing my account of Cat Stevens, she was like, I just thought I was alone and, like, had this crazy cat. And she's like, but then single cat syndrome. Like, I I got another cat. She said it was a little tough, but they're they're happy. Single I'm, cat syndrome is real. I love that. It's a real our, affliction. I love that our show empowered her to get a second cat. Like, yeah, it, and she's it, like, you need to do it. And I was like, send me an email and tell me everything. And she did. And are you going to get a second cat? It's, uh, this apartment's too small. Uh-huh. Liel, my muscle tub is to uh, my friend Daniel Tryman, who is now a lawyer. He passed the bar. He passed the bar. Uh, I I was going to uh, you know shout him out at the live show, which he attended, uh, but you know, but you forgot. It turns out that a lot of mezcal does really <laughs> does. funny things to your brain. My mazel tov is to uh, Kate Vogel and Mike Schechter. Uh, they invited us to their children's baby naming. We did not um, have the time to acquire transportation to Anchorage, Alaska, which is where they live. So we were not able to make the baby naming. But if it had been in the tri-state area, we would have gone. Make no mistake, I would have been there. Um, their twins are Maximus Joseph and Zoe Madeline. And uh, mazel tov to all four of them. Maximus. Maximus and Maximus. Zoe. Maximus and Zoe are, that's a superhero duo. That is the Wonder Twins. Absolutely. Yeah. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow us and join our Facebook group. Go to facebook.com, go to the tablet webpage, and then look at groups. And we are Unorthodox Podcast. Uh, almost 500 of you have joined already. So I want to get to 1,000. It's not really Mushbook until there are 1,000 of you. It's Facebook. a minion, a Facebook minion. It's not a Facebook minion until we have That's the AJ Jacobs motto. That's right. It's not really a, a Mushbook until there are 1,000 of thousands us. Thousands and thousands. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision this week by Cantor Sherry Allen of Arlington, Texas, and kosher slaughtering by, once again, Paul Manafort. We recorded Argo Studios, which has cut a deal with Robert Mueller, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>